the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Years ago, before I came back to the United States to plant this church, I was serving in Albania, and our church and seminary were in a communist-era building. And what that meant, among other things, was that there was not much insulation, and so it got very cold in the winter. We had these wall units you've probably seen before, that for AC as well as for heat rather than central heat. As soon as I got in in the mornings into my office, I'd use a little remote and turn that heater on and leave it on throughout the morning. Later on that day, my teammate would come in either to, for us to go out to lunch or have a meeting, and he'd remark how hot it was. And he would ask me, don't you know how hot it has gotten in this room? I'm boiling in here. And I would have no idea. And he'd often say, the frog in the kettle, the frog in the kettle. Perhaps you've heard that before. The premise is that if you take a frog and put it in room temperature water on the stove and then turn on the burner, he would stay in the water until he was literally boiled to death because the water was warming up slowly and he was acclimating, getting used to it bit by bit, degree by degree, just like the heat in my office. But if you had a pot of already boiling water and threw a frog in there, he would immediately jump out because he'd notice the difference, much like my friend coming out from the cold hallways of that old building into my hot office. This idea, this principle also applies to sin. To our getting used to sin in our own lives little by little, yes, but also in the slow but steady moral degeneration of our culture and how we get used to it step by step, movement by movement, day by day. This has happened much in our world and with much in our world. But nothing has occurred as quickly and surpassed the bounds of acceptance and into the realm of threatening the church as homosexuality and the modern sexual revolution. This morning, I stand in solidarity with dozens, if not hundreds, of other pastors in the United States and Canada who this very Sunday are preaching on biblical sexual morality. And I'll explain why this Sunday in a little bit. This morning, I want to give you four insights into biblical sexual morality to give us an understanding of why it is wrong, why it is sin, and what we are to do about it. The first insight into biblical sexual morality is the institution established. The institution established. In the beginning, God created man and woman. 
The very first page of your Bible in Genesis 1.27, it says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The narrative tells us that this was not multiple men. It was not multiple women. It was one man and one woman. They were clearly partners. They were the start of the human race, which means everything in them was a pattern, the pattern set forth for humanity from there on out. The pattern of being made in God's image. The pattern of partnership. The pattern even of their sin, which was passed on to the rest of humanity. The pattern of marriage being between only a man and a woman. We go on to see that the first thing God says to them, according to verse 28 of Genesis 1, is, quote, be fruitful and multiply. Have children. Fill the earth with your type. You're, you're the only humans, not animals. We need humans. Be fruitful and multiply. Not only was this the institution of marriage, but also affirming God's design for men and women. Not just to have children, but also biologically created in such a way that they can have children and created in such a way that only through a man and a woman can procreation occur. Both are needed. A man cannot have a child biologically with another man or a woman with another woman. And whatever modern science has given us, whether it's fertilization of an egg in a lab, a surrogate that carries the baby, or even a transgender biological male giving birth, The simple and essential fact, both in science and theology, is that it is necessary to have the seed of a man and the egg of a biological woman to have a baby. We also have the two becoming one flesh. The one flesh principle is first seen in Genesis 2.24, later quoted by by Jesus in Matthew 19 and Paul in Ephesians 5. We also recently in our study of 1 Corinthians saw him quote it back in 1 Corinthians 6. And it was in 1 Corinthians 6 that we saw the close connection in God's eyes between sex and marriage, a true bond both spiritually as well as physically. And what we see is that God ordained and biologically created male and female to fit together not only in marriage but in sexual relations. Without being too graphic, you understand this, that the two have organs that fit together perfectly for such a task. And the foundation of mankind and all of society is clear. God's intention was for a man and a woman to marry and to procreate. Multiplying on earth is so connected to marriage that the pattern and biology of heterosexuality is undeniable. To redefine marriage or sexuality as between two individuals of the same gender is not merely a symptom of redefinition of God's plan for marriage, but also a redefinition of God's design for sexual intimacy and God's creation of biological truth. And so we see that from the very beginning, the beginning of scriptures, the beginning of the story of man, the beginning of the history and creation of man, God's clear plan, the institution of marriage, the institution of male and female. One could argue that this is not clear in Genesis 1 and 2. 
one could try to generalize the example of Adam and Eve and see them not as a pattern for marriage between a man and a woman, but as a pattern for any two individuals in love and procreation. There is adoption. There is surrogacy. surrogacy. There are things like that today. The world is different, one could argue. In other words, gay marriage and thus homosexuality is okay, even as defended by Scripture. To address that, I'd like to move on to the second insight into biblical sexual morality, and that is the immorality explained. Romans 1 speaks of the declaration of the existence of God through creation and the consciences of man. And because of this clear evidence of God, every man has enough to seek him or reject him. But if you're familiar with Romans chapter 1, it is not a thesis on salvation through evidence, but condemnation because of the rejection of that evidence. Romans chapter 1 is all about condemnation of those who have rejected Christ, rejected God, despite the evidence in creation around us, not that there was a virgin birth of a Savior, but at least that there is a Creator, a higher power. You hear this from your non-Christian friends. Well, I believe in a higher power. Of course, look around us. It's obvious. That's Romans 1. But Romans 1 is not praising these people or offering them salvation through looking at the trees. It is showing them why they are condemned. And in Romans 1, Paul explains why. Would you turn there with me? Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 32. And as we read through this, I want you to notice the first and foundational sin he mentions. He mentions a lot. He mentions a lot that mankind has done in their rejection of him, starting with idolatry. But what does that idolatry, that rejection of the one true God lead to? Romans 1, 21 through 32. It says, For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they, they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And here it is, verse 23. And exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image, those are statues, idols, in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore... God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. He says, look, you want to reject, I will give you what you want. People argue, well, God doesn't let us do what we want. Here he is. And what they wanted was their sin. Verse 25, why? For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So they rejected him. Turn to idols. The most common idol in our society is oneself. And then we get into the patterns of sin that result from this. Verse 26. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. The very first sin that's mentioned and elaborated on on this 
primary passage speaking of and explaining the condemnation of all mankind is homosexuality. Verse 28, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. All those sins are not describing homosexuality or homosexuals, but you see the pattern here. You see the order of priority, if you will, which Paul lays out. The immorality of homosexuality is very clear if if it is laid out for the basis of condemnation and the foundational sin of rejecting God. So when you look at the whole of Scripture, you can then no longer argue that in Genesis 1, it could be a man and a man, or a woman and a woman. Understand that when I speak of homosexuality, I'm including all of the issues within the LGBTQ plus movement, including gender dysphoria, transgenderism, all of those things, bisexual. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, if you turn there, if, in, if you're in Romans, just turn one book over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. And we see that the immorality of homosexuality in God's eyes is further affirmed. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of God. And praise God for that. What this is saying is not someone who struggled with homosexuality or a kid who once stole a pack of gum cannot inherit the kingdom of God. What this is talking about is those who are characterized by these behaviors are simply not believers because we will know them by their fruit. You see, you can be saved if you once did these things, including homosexuality. But if you are still practicing any of these on a continual basis, it is evidence that you are not a true believer because a true believer would not be enslaved to their sin in this way. So to be clear, this is not believers who can practice a homosexual lifestyle because that just since puberty, they've been attracted to the same sex and, but there's a caveat here, there's a footnote, that as a Christian, you won't go to heaven because of these sins. No, they're not Christians. Only believers will inherit the kingdom of God. And we must see 
we must not see this merely as a participation in it. We will inherit it. It is because of Christ. Heaven is rightfully ours. The kingdom is rightfully ours. And in the same vein, because of Christ, we have been transformed and live in a way in which our habitual actions, our character, are in line with that calling. They are in line with the character of Christ. Are we perfect? No. Are we characterized by habitual acts of righteousness? Yes. Are unbelievers perfect? No. Are they characterized by habitual acts of righteousness? Impossible. Impossible without Christ, thus the title, unrighteous. So, despite what the world may believe and even what certain religions may teach or accept, these individuals cannot be Christians. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. So don't be deceived by their beliefs, their teachings, or even their external actions. In this list, by the way, as a side note, if you remember back in uh, 1 Corinthians 6, effeminate and homosexuals are both referring, referring to homosexuality. It would just refer to different roles within that relationship. If you have the ESV, it combines both into one group. So what is this? This is anyone who has exchanged the God-given and ordained male-female roles in such relationships. And much like today, this behavior spread like wildfire through the Greek and Roman cultures. And again, this would include anything that would fall within the LGBTQ+. This goes back to Genesis 1. There is no way that you can include homosexuality if this is how God views it, both as a symbol of unrighteousness in Romans 1 and a sign of unbelief in 1 Corinthians 6. And so clearly, this is sin. Let's move on to the third insight into biblical sexual morality, the importance of evaluated. The importance of evaluated And here you'll understand why I and so many other pastors are preaching on this topic today. The reality is that sin is sin. Whether it's adultery, whether it's theft, whether it's anger, whether it's lying, whether it's homosexuality, it all breaks the law of God. Despite what you may think about homosexuality, it is no greater or lesser sin than any other sin. But there are several reasons that we are spending a particular sermon just on this topic. One of the reasons is to emphasize the authority of Scripture over social pressure, over cultural norms, and definitely over politics. It's like what I said about the charismatic movement and experience last week. Once you capitulate on even the smallest jot or tittle of the Scriptures, it does not remain with that issue. It's like breaking a hole in the dam. The hole will get bigger and bigger, and it will spread and can spread to any other aspect of Christianity or the Bible that you do not like because of culture or your feelings or previous learning or another religion or whatever it is. It will not remain with this issue. It's the bigger issue of saying that the authority of the Word of God is not absolute, which makes the Word of God no authority at all. 
And when that happens, you can take out, reinterpret, or flat out ignore any part of Scripture that you want. But I'm speaking on this today because there's a more pressing and practical uh, importance here. Yes, sin is sin, but this one is unique in its threat to the church and the gospel, culturally and politically and legally. Unlike other sins, whether they are criminalized, such as murder and theft, or whether they are socially and legally acceptable, such as abortion, premarital sex, or anger, this one, this one sin that is both socially and legally acceptable has the additional challenge of it being a threat to the freedom of Christianity in the United States of America. What do I mean? It can very simply be summed up in the phrase hate speech. The reason I and dozens of other pastors have chosen to preach on this topic today is because this past week on January 8th, 2022, Bill C-4 was enacted into law in Canada, which amends the criminal code in Canada to ban conversion therapy. What is conversion therapy? It is any sort of therapy to help those struggling with homosexuality to stay or become heterosexual. To be fair, there are types of conversion therapy that have been practiced in the past that are harmful to individuals, such as surgical removal of sexual organs or destroying fertility through hormones. These should be avoided. These are not practiced, should not be practiced by the church. We're not talking about those. Because what is included in this new law is simply biblical counseling. What is biblical counseling? It is using Scripture to help guide someone in their lives so that their lives correspond to Scripture. In other words, this law, which is now in effect in Canada, criminalizes biblical counseling for homosexuality, gender dysphoria, or anything of the sort. The wording of this new law in Canada states that the idea that gender gender identity and gender expression conform to the sex assigned at birth is a myth. It uses that word. It is a myth. In other words, what an individual's gender or sexual preference is at birth has no bearing on their true gender or sexual preferences. And to think otherwise would be akin to believing in the existence of unicorns. To put it yet another way, God's design for man and woman and marriage is a fable. It's a myth. Bold pastors throughout Canada at the threat of being arrested have spoken out, are preaching this morning, and have reached out to pastors in America and have asked us to do the same, which is why we're doing this. You are well aware that this does not and will not remain with Canada. Great Britain is following suit. A broad interpretation of what they are pushing in Great Britain would make it illegal If a Christian comes to another Christian on their own initiative, says they are struggling with homosexual temptations, will you pray for me 
Great Britain wants to make that illegal. To pray. If it comes, has to deal with sexuality. I might add that the bill in Canada was passed by the House of Commons unanimously. Not one single nay vote. The punishment for undergoing or practicing conversion therapy, and understand this is in the church just basic biblical counseling, is up to five years in prison. By the way, this was directly brought to my attention through John MacArthur by the pastor who was put in prison because he didn't close his church in Canada during COVID. Anyone promoting or advertising it? So if you just said, oh, you're struggling with that? Go talk to Pastor Roger. Phases up to two years in prison. Up to two years in prison just to tell someone, hey, you should go talk to someone at the church. You say, but that's Canada. We know, or maybe you don't know this, but they are far more progressive in their liberalism than the United States. You say, well, we have freedoms that they don't. That is true. But to respond to that, firstly, we need to be concerned about the whole church of God, not just ourselves and not just the church in the United States. And secondly, more practically, gay conversion, that's a quote, gay conversion, was actually made illegal in California in 2012 with the passing of Senate Bill 1172. It's also outlawed in New York, New Jersey, and Nevada. That's just them, you say. Right now, as I speak, in the city of West Lafayette, Indiana, the city council is considering an ordinance that would ban such therapies by unlicensed counselors that counsel a minor on sexuality in a way that conflicts with LGBTQ plus beliefs. There's a Gospel Coalition article about this. I want to read from it about what's happening in West Lafayette. And I quote, For example, if a teenager goes to a Christian counseling center about unwanted same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria, so notice this is the Christian teen initiating. He's going into this counseling center. It would be breaking the law to give them answers based on biblical sexual ethics. The penalty for violating the ban on so-called conversion therapy is a fine of $1,000 per day. The proposed ordinance defines conversion therapy as any practices or treatments that seek to, quote, change an individual's sexual orientation or gender identity, including efforts to change gender expressions or to eliminate or reduce sexual or romantic attractions or feelings toward individuals of the same gender. So even if a pastor said, okay, you're gay, that's okay, you just can't have premarital gay sex, that would be against this ordinance, loosely interpreted. The law makes an exception, though, for counseling that affirms a minor's embrace of homosexuality or gender identity hypocrisy much you notice that here in indiana this is for unlicensed counselors 
which would include pastors and biblical counselors who would not be legally licensed therapists under the state of Indiana's professional licensing agency. At the end there, you also heard the exception to the prohibition on counseling someone who's gay as long as you are affirming their homosexuality or gender dysphoria. Now, I'll be honest, I'm no lawyer, but it is unlikely that this one in Indiana will be passed. All other bills that have been enacted into the law have targeted licensed therapists, not unlicensed. That's where they believe this city council has gone wrong. It's noted that it's also poorly written, so it just probably won't pass. But regardless, here's the point and here's the danger. What this is trying to prohibit is simply the practice of using the Bible to help others make life decisions. Unless you think this refers only to some strange therapies therapies happening in some dark alley or a back room of some church, ask yourself what this refers to. The practice of using the Bible to help others make decisions regarding life. Is not every sermon the practice of using the Bible to help others make decisions regarding life? Is that not what you are doing when you share the gospel? When you pray before you eat? When you have casual biblical fellowship? Small groups? We need to look at the big picture. If the government can tell you that it is illegal to speak biblical truth Regarding sexuality, it will not stop there. If you are at all familiar with even the recent history of politics and culture in our nation, you know that it is not a leap to say that we are in the beginnings of a path that will lead to the criminalizing of gospel preaching. It is illegal in many countries around the world already. The freedom to preach the gospel is not promised in Scripture. One of the scariest things about this is the removal of consent. And if you listen to Al Mohler's The Briefing, which I highly recommend, he mentioned this in talking about this bill and law in Canada. I want to elaborate a little more on what he said. See, it doesn't matter if someone seeks the counsel. I've said this already. So the culture, and now the government, is saying that it doesn't even matter what you want because when it comes to LGBTQ issues, you must give in to what they say and what they want. You, as a teenager or an adult struggling with homosexuality, it doesn't even matter if you want to change. You need to stay the same. How dangerous is that? It's just one of the many aspects of hypocrisy because the movement has so long made consent one of their biggest arguments. Well, we're not, we're not forcing anyone to be gay. They are consenting to do these things. They want to do these things. But now if they don't want to be gay, now consent is thrown out the window. Because even logic is thrown out the window and manipulated to further their agenda. Do you understand how scary that is? 
You want to have an abortion? Your choice. You want to keep the baby at 13 years old? Go ahead. Your choice. Wonderful. You want to do this? Wonderful. You want to do that? Wonderful. You want to change your homosexual desires? Not allowed. You're not allowed to. So then what do we do? What do we do as Christians in America? What do we do as we will see undoubtedly very soon pastors in Canada being arrested? None of these pastors, I would argue, hate gays. None of these pastors would be okay with people going to the pride parade and beating people up. I wouldn't. They have compassion for these people. They love these people. And yet they could be sent to prison for up to five years simply for reading passages that I read to you this morning. Not even interpreting them, just reading them. So hate speech is now even just quoting the Scriptures. So what do we do? Number four, the implications engaged. In light of all of this, here are some things we need to do and some things we need to understand. There are some things I clearly want to get across to you, so I'm going to admit to you this list is going to be a mixed bag of practical and theological. The first always is pray. We need to pray. I, couldn't, I don't have enough time to even begin telling you what to pray for. Pray that this won't happen here. Pray that if it does, that we would have the courage to continue speaking up. Pray that the pastors, that this would be a law that they're not strongly enforcing. Pray that the pastors in Canada would have courage. The pastors in Great Britain, which is very pagan, if you're not aware, would be bold. Pray for protection when they are in prison. Things like that. Pray. Pray most of all with gratitude that you would glorify God no matter what happens. That we would preach and even in handcuffs, not sin in anger, not sin in judgment, but glorify God. Pray for me. Pray for pastors. You understand this doesn't affect most Christians in a practical level. It affects biblical counselors. It affects pastors. Number two, understand that biblical definitions matter. Defining things, even though the world, rest of the world uses these terms, that biblical definitions matter. For example, the definition of love. We know in society, and especially in Hollywood, not everything that God calls love is love in our world. It doesn't work in our own lives. It doesn't work in others' lives to redefine love however you want based on just feelings, emotions, politics, peer pressure. You need to understand that love involves biblical truth and it involves way more and aspects that are much deeper than just feelings and emotions. True love is going to hurt people's feelings because it speaks the truth, but it saves souls from hell. With that, we could add to this list the definitions of man, the biblical definition of woman, the biblical definition of marriage. We need to understand the biblical definition of sin. 
Sin is what God says, not what the world says. It does not change because culture changes. Sexuality is not morally neutral. Your sexuality either glorifies Him or it is sin. It is not a blank slate. This is, again, no grosser sin than anything else, but it does bother us and it threatens us. And when I say, look, all sin is sin, this is not to diminish your reaction to sexual immorality, but to intensify your reaction to all sin. Biblical definitions matter. Number three, understand the reality of assignment versus choice. Assignment versus choice. We live in a culture and where we have so many freedoms that we have gotten to the point that our opinions, our feelings, and our choices are the same as truth. By definition, they are subjective. These days, according to the political correctness movement, they are objective. Maybe not for everyone else, but for you, they are objective. Which I haven't looked it up recently, but I'm pretty sure is the opposite of the definition of objective. Okay? In terms of this issue, because God made you a man, you are a man. Not God made me a biological man and I realized later that I'm a woman. No. God made you a man. He chose you from the beginning of time to be a man. And because God made you a woman, you are a woman. Your feelings and desires are real but they do not mean you have a choice to change what God has assigned. The principle we've seen in our study, uh, this principle can be seen in our study of spiritual gifts. You may wish you could preach in front of a church of thousands, but if that's not your spiritual gift, you don't have that choice. You have been assigned a spiritual gift. What you wish, I wish I could do this, I wish I could do that, It doesn't change what God has done and assigned. Same goes to your gender, your position at work. I wish I could be the boss, but you're not, so you submit to him. What you desire doesn't mean you have a choice in the matter. And somehow when it comes to gender, feelings and desire means they have a choice. And somehow, these surgeries that are frankly masochistic are touted as a good thing. You ever looked at your coverage on your insurance? We all have different coverages, right? 10000 for this, 100000 for this. And then you get to the part of sex changes and the amount goes into six, seven figures. It may be for some of you the only time you see the word unlimited. You think this is a business decision? Kind of, because they have to give in to the peer pressure. It's assignment, not choice. This goes to, you wish you could be the boss, but you're to submit to your husband. That's your assignment. Sometimes, as the pastor, as the leader of my home, 
I wish I didn't have to be so, have that responsibility. But I don't get that choice. I've been assigned a role. I've been assigned a gender. The problem is we have let our personal desires make choice more authoritative than God's assignment. This is a huge problem in our culture. This is a huge problem in the church. It used to be, okay, the Bible says this, then the Bible says this, and I don't like it. I don't, I'm going, uh, you know, everything in me says I shouldn't do this, but the Bible says it, so I'm going to do it. But now you have a choice. You don't feel like doing it, don't do it. It doesn't make sense to you, don't do it. So-and-so says it's not true, don't do it. And if we do this as Christians, of course the world's going to do that. And of course, like a steamroller, the world's going to punish those who don't. And we're really the only major institution that no longer or won't do this. So they punish us. Number four, biblical submission is hierarchical. We are to submit to the government, Romans 13, 1 Peter 2, Titus 3. But biblical submission is hierarchical. In other words, submit to the government, yes, but only if it does not violate Scripture. I think you know this, but I wanted to put this in here because you can't say, well, pastor, the law's here now, so you can't counsel that guy. Yes, I can. But Romans 13, you must submit to the authorities. Well, I need to submit to God first. And only when those things align do I submit to my boss, my pastor, my elders, my husband, my whatever, okay? So when the government says not to counsel someone in our church regarding their sexuality, you do not submit to the government. The next is similar, number five, submit to the entirety of God's word. It is not enough to take his word piecemeal. And to say, look at society now. Look at this. I know, you know, it's not, you know, this is, this is an outdated belief. You, you know how these um, liberal churches and people in the culture who use the Bible, they say, no, these passages you read, like 1 Corinthians 6 and many Old Testament passages, this is talking about a child molestation. It's not in the context. That's bad. But it's not in the context, and this is not what it's talking about. And if you push them further, what would you even consider child molestation biblically? In biblical times, people were getting married and having children at puberty. So even your definition of 18 doesn't make sense. And it's not consistent with what you believe because you're telling people now at four and five years old, they can recognize if they want a sex change. So it's not even consistent anyways. That's molesting children to feed them that kind of stuff. So submit to the entirety of God's word. It's not enough to take his word piecemeal. What you like and what you don't want to address or what you're scared to address, well, let's just let that go because I've met gay people. They're very nice they're very kind people, which they are, but that doesn't, that's neither here nor there. 
as the one who has sinned against and who is the ultimate judge, God decides what is sin. Not society, not culture, not government, and definitely not political correctness, because if that was true, sin would be redefined about every 17, 18 years. Finally, number six. So fitting, we, we, at least for the hymns, I picked them ahead of time. God is sovereign. Stand up for Christ and his word. This is the most practical thing of what do we do here. Because now this talks about not what we do here in this room or what you do in your prayer closet, but out there. Salt, being salt and light does not mean just believing in God. It does not mean just being a good person. Believing in God is not enough. That's biblical. We must submit to all that he has taught us. You see, there's no such thing in the Bible as a good Christian or a bad Christian, a serious Christian, a weak Christian, a strong Christian. They're simply Christian. Yes, there's different levels of maturity and understanding. That's not what we're talking about. But when you talk about someone who's like, oh, I go to church a few times a year. I'm not really serious about it, but I'm a Christian. There's no category in that in the Scriptures. You're Christian or not. It's simply Christian or unbeliever with one footnote. All other categories would fit into what the Bible calls a lukewarm Christian, which in Revelation 3.16, God says he will spit out of his mouth. Church culture has used that term as like, oh, he's just a young Christian, let him grow. No, lukewarm Christian is bad. So stand up for Christ and his word. How? Love your neighbor as yourself. This goes back to defining love biblically. It doesn't mean accepting or giving into their feelings or their sin. It means telling them the truth. Lovingly, graciously, without judgment, but firmly, without capitulating. Understanding depravity and enslavement to sin, but telling them the truth. Sometimes I feel like we treat unbelievers like apostates. We, we treat them like people who came into our church that we love and care for as a brother or sister in Christ, and then they leave and they just spew out evil against us and try to harm us. We feel stabbed in the back. We're angry. They should know better. Unbelievers should not know better. They are not able to know better, and we need to treat them as such. Not in a condescending way, but with an understanding that, but for the grace of God, go I. Listen carefully. If you truly believe in heaven and hell, then you aren't doing anyone any favors by sparing their feelings or trying to make friends. They need Christ. They don't need you. They don't need your acceptance. They don't need you to spare their feelings. They need Christ. When we talk about being salt and light, 
here in a place where we actually have the privilege. Christian, your vote matters. How you vote matters. What you do outside of the church matters. How you live your life in society matters. Jesus told us in that passage of salt and light that nobody lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. What's the point? You don't see the light. It doesn't brighten anything. You're still in the dark. God doesn't choose you to be light just so you can hide it in the multi-purpose room of a high school or in your privacy of your own home. You are to be light out there, which involves many things, not just this issue. How are you going to live when the walls are closing in legally and culturally in this specific issue? How are you going to stand up, stand up for Jesus? Did you notice that in that hymn it says our strength is unequal to our task? Why? Because we have God's strength. He does it in us and through us. Are you willing to stand up for Christ, especially in this arena where you could be outcast, you could be made fun of? You know what we need to stop doing as Christians? Because this is what they're doing. We need to stop seeing someone, a child or teenager, and say, oh, she likes to play war and not with dolls. She must be a lesbian. We need to stop saying, oh, she likes short hair. She must be gay. Oh, he likes flowers. He must be gay. What in the world? That's one of the great hypocrisies of the LGBTQ movement. They don't want us to stereotype, and yet that's what they're doing. We're already at a place where there are no girls who are in college who could say, oh, I used to be a tomboy and I'm heterosexual. Oh, she's a tomboy? Start pushing the agenda. You're lesbian. You know that, right? This is what's happening out there. Why? Because a boy likes flowers? We need to be careful that we don't buy into this nonsense. And we need to remove hate. I, I, look, I understand that this issue is worse for you just as a sin because, frankly, for many people, it's just kind of gross. It's disturbing. And then you add all the political pressure. It really bothers you. But we need to be careful as Christians. If there are homosexuals in your work or in your family, you should be friends with them, like you're friends with any unbelievers. You shouldn't be saying, I have nothing to do with you. That's not what the Scriptures are saying. You shouldn't hate them. You shouldn't judge them. You should love them and preach, which means preaching the gospel to them. Understanding the issues. Understanding this isn't just some gross decision they they decided to make someday. They just have always been attracted to the same sex. And I know this may be controversial, but the reality is, and in my granted very limited experience with the, the several homosexuals that I know, especially for the men, their dad was never around growing up. That's theological, by the way. Side note, be involved with, in your children. Because part of creation is that God has given 
little boys and little girls an innate desire for that male and female example and authority in their lives. And if they don't get that, they will get it somewhere else. And when they hit puberty, everything's confused. Not always the case, but true in many cases. When it comes to our relationships with homosexuals, I've told you before, I wish more were here. I think there's no better place for them to be on a Sunday morning than hearing the truth taught. We accept them. We not their lifestyle, we accept them as individuals who need to hear the gospel. You know what your relationship with homosexuals should look like? It should be so gracious and so loving and yet with the truth that they should come up to you one day and say, I'm getting married to my partner. You're my buddy. I really wish you were there, but I know you probably won't come, and I respect that. Somehow in our minds, we think that's impossible. That we either just totally reject them and hate them, or we love them and don't say anything about salvation or their lifestyle. That's how it should be. That's how it should be for anything. Hey, I love you, man. Such a good friend. I wish you could be there, but I want to tell you, you don't want to be at this party that I'm throwing to protect you because I know what you believe. That's how, how we should be, salt and light. That they respect us, we respect them, but they know where we stand. I think I mentioned a week or two ago, people, I know people who start blowing up in profanity and they're like, oh, sorry, they apologize to their Christian friend because they know. They know where they stand. They know where they are. Are you standing up or are you scared? You can stand up and gain their respect at the same time. Not a lot, but I've counseled a few Christians who have struggled with homosexuality. And I'll tell you, it's completely changed my perspective and my compassion on these people. My best friend in college was a Christian but had struggled with it before, and so the temptations are still there. You understand that. As a man, even though you have gotten a handle on your struggle with lust, you're still not going to go into certain places or watch certain movies, right? Whatever your sin is. Right? Yeah, I've repented of my anger, but I'm still not going to go to that person's house that triggered that. It's the same thing. They may still have those thoughts. This individual is happily married to a woman now, has several kids, but the temptation is still there. And he would tell me, he would tell me, he said, yeah, it was hard for me when all the guys, we decided to go to the gym. And I knew I shouldn't have, but I went into the locker room with you guys. You tell, he would confess that because he needed help. I remember going to a, a college retreat or a, a college Bible study. And a guy came up to me and he said, can I talk to you privately? We were at a hotel, we walked by the pool, and he just started weeping. Solid guy, roommate with other small group leaders and leaders in our Bible study. And he said, I need to tell you that I struggle with same-sex attraction. And he started, he's weeping and he said, I'll tell you what I want to do. I want to jump in that pool and kill myself right now because I feel like I'm lying to my roommates. And I said, first of all, I want to tell you 
I brought him to 1 Corinthians 6. I said, you're not a homosexual by this definition. You're not practicing it. Has you ever done anything? Try to hold a guy's hand, kiss a guy? No, nothing. You're not a practicing homosexual. This does not apply to you, okay? You're struggling with the sin. I struggle with the same sin, but towards women. Let's deal with it that way, okay? And he said, just since puberty, I just been attracted to other guys, and I've hated it, and I've tried to suppress it. And this is the problem, right? Christians who struggle with this are afraid to speak up, so they suppress it rather than dealing with it, and now the government is making it illegal for them to deal with it or at least get help for it. By the way, this, this individual wrote such a powerful op-ed piece when New York was trying to ban conversion therapy that he was saying, no, we need it, that the New York Times picked it up and published it. But the one thing is that you'll hear over and over again from people who struggle with this, who are seeking help in the church, they'll constantly say, you don't understand. You don't understand. You don't understand. And it's true. We don't understand, most of us. We've never experienced this. In their minds, it is different than just lust, the the sin of lust for the opposite sex. It is unique. I would agree with that. Lust has been promoted by society. It's been accepted by society. Most people in society don't understand why it's wrong. There are major industries, multi-million, billion-dollar industries based on lust, but not on this kind of lust. And so you say, you don't get it. And so you start addressing it like a normal saying. You say, you don't get it. But we still need to try. We need to pray. We need to be a people who try to help others and not just condemn and not just flippantly say, well, you know, I struggle with lust too. And you, just, you know, just kind of blow it off because you're freaking out and you don't know what to say. You know, sometimes that's the best thing to say. You put your arm around them. You get scared of them. Think because they're gay, they're going to be attracted to you. No, you put your arm around them. Ask if it's okay first. You do that anyways. And say, hey, I don't know what to say. I'll pray for you. We should be doing this with anyone who struggles with sin. Don't be the frog in the kettle. Many of us already are. Slowly watching the world around you boil and burn and eventually taking you down. Look, if I can stand up for biblical morality here in public, on the internet, live, and archived on the internet forever? So can you. The issue is real. The threat is real. And I have your back. Do you have mine? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that you have ordained all things and you are sovereign. 
We also know you answer prayer, and we do ask that this would not happen in our country, that you would temper the feelings and the arrests in Canada and Great Britain and elsewhere. Pray that you would give us wisdom and boldness of how to speak up, not in a sinful way, not in a hurtful way, but in a bold and biblical, gracious, loving way, speaking the truth. Help us to not hide, but to stand up for you, for the church, for your word. Help us to be bold. May this sermon affect people in a way that honors you. May we be a church that loves biblically, that confronts biblically, that lives as salt and light. Help us to not be afraid, but at the same time have a very real understanding of the issues at stake. Be with our Canadian brothers. May they remain bold and clear with the gospel and their counseling, and may we follow suit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand as we close. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.